Welcome to Across the Margin, the podcast. I'm your host, Michael Shields. Across the Margin, the podcast is a proud member of the Osiris Media Group. Check out all their offerings at OsirisPod.com. I have a truly special episode for you today, one where I present an interview with independent underground rapper Sage Francis in a 20th anniversary celebration of his renowned studio debut album, Personal Journals. Francis is widely considered one of our generation's greatest lyricists. His career derives mainly from gifted wordplay, which creates vivid narratives to investigate as well as inspire. Dubbed as the forefather of indie hip-hop, Francis originally earned acclaim in the early 2000s by winning the most highly coveted titles of the MC Battle Circuit. With little to no funding, Francis sustained himself by selling his innovative Sick Of mixtapes, all made by hand on the floor of his Providence, Rhode Island apartment. These were essentially bootleg compilations full of select recordings from his 12-inch vinyl singles, demo sessions, live performances, and radio freestyles. The popularity of these tapes led to Strange Famous Records, a meager one-man operation in 1999. Despite having no official distribution, Francis's unique brand of music spread like wildfire via the advent of file-sharing networks. This resulted in him attaining a massive cult-like following around the world, creating a demand for his albums and live performances, at which point the bigger labels took notice. With his first studio album, Personal Journals, which is the focus of this episode, Francis daringly set aside the more boastful side of rap by catering to his poetic leanings and scathing socio-political commentary. In 2005, Francis was the first hip-hop artist signed to the punk rock label Epitaph Records, and soon became one of the highest-selling independent artists of his genre. Rather than abandon his day-to-day grind at Strange Famous Records, he channeled all of his newfound resources into it, allowing the label to expand in staff as well as roster. Having fulfilled his contract obligations with Epitaph Records, Francis has returned to releasing music independently as he gears up to defeat the odds. But... As alluded to, this episode focused on where it all began for Francis, his aforementioned first studio album put into the world by the underground hip-hop collective Anticon in 2002. The ambitious 18-track album featured dazzling production from a grouping of all two unheralded producers including 6-2, DJ Mayonnaise, Jell, Scott Metallic, Reanimator, Alias, Adnazum, Controller 7, Joe Beats, and Mr. Dibs. It's a deeply personal album where Francis wears all of life's suffering on his sleeve while inviting listeners to join in on a tour of the tortured, introspective mind of a gifted storyteller. While decisively weighty, Personal Journals is also witty and full of hard-hitting old-school boom-bap hip-hop brimming with a slam poetry ethos. Personal Journals, like few hip-hop albums ever created, is an amazing display of fearless honesty and it's easy to look at the lyrical offerings of Personal Journals as akin to Francis pulling wide his scar tissue and narrating a detailed, candid tour of their frayed innards. It's hard to think that rappers such as Tyler the Creator, Dave, Logic, Isaiah Rashad, or Denzel Curry would feel so comfortable bearing their faults without trailblazers like Francis who led the way. His career following personal journals is prodigious, and exploring his ensuing work is a rewarding campaign onto its own. But it was personal journals, a rigid, self-examination of an album flush with soul-bearing lyrics that will persist as the crown jewel of Francis' legacy. In this episode, Sage and I discuss what he feels about personal journals with 20 years of hindsight to consider. 
We explore the meaning behind a bevy of the tracks on the album, while he shares stories about the personal journals recording sessions, how his intimate lyrics were received by those closest to him, and so much more. Two quick notes before we jump in. We refer to an article I wrote a few times during the interview. What we are speaking of is an article about personal journals I recently published at acrossthemargin.com. You can check it out there. And this is incredible. At the conclusion of the episode, you will hear a snippet of a demo referenced in the interview. It's of Runaway's lyrics over the alias beat, which would eventually become the Keep Moving song on Human the Death Dance. So hardcore fans are going to definitely want to stick around and hear that. So let's get into it. Here is my interview with Sage Francis. Podcast. But this is a really good time for me to do it. Yeah, cool. That's, I, you know what? I, I actually write those articles a lot. Um, like 20 years later, I feel like for some reason, 20 years is a great like hindsight point of view to like kind of step back and have some space in between it, you know, growing, you know, we're a different person. But I mean, it's, it's you can kind of analyze what was going on then and, and where you were at. It's fun. Yeah, I would say you if you're a normal person or someone who's growing, you're a whole different person in 20 years than you were, Definitely. you know, 20 years prior. Yeah, we, so yeah. you're able to look at it like from a whole different perspective and make greater sense of things. Um, and yeah, that time period was, we were just on the cusp of like the world changing so drastically. Absolutely. And um, it's tough, actually tough to remember how it was back then yeah. just because of how different it is now. Definitely. I mean, think yeah. about just what happened, not only that major event, what happened with technology and the way people communicated. And it's really interesting to see, you know, I touched on a little bit when I was writing about it, how, uh, you know, makeshift uh, Patriot was kind of how like that gained steam. And it, it's, it did it in a different way, uh, you know, because the Internet was a different, different landscape or didn't really, even, you know, have have a role in it. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was curious about that. That kind of will lead us into personal journals. Um you know, that song meant a lot to me and a lot of people just because there was that like huge, you know, hurrah, like let's 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 get them type of attitude going on in the world. Did you have anyone in your kind of cypher in your world that like, did you get any backlash for that song? Yeah, as expected, there was definitely um, it raised a lot of red flags for people who were not trying to hear anything that was even slightly critical of America or uh, how we operate in this world and how the government um, treats its citizens and how they use um, uh, events like that to take control and to strip rights. Uh, so, it, I mean, I expected it. I actually expected a lot more bash, backlash than I received. Uh, I would say mostly it was a lot of people coming out in support, thanking me for voicing their mind Um because I feel like a lot of people were feeling and thinking the same things, but they also knew it was very faux pas to voice those opinions and they didn't want to find themselves (laughs) on the wrong side of the law or their family or their community. 
Um, and I was in a perfect position uh, at the time to be able to say that without much fear of um, immediate backlash within my inner circle. You know, uh -huh. it was a, I was very free as an artist and um, in my personal life. I, I was in my early 20s. I was floating about, um, you know, I didn't have much family to speak of. I didn't have any uh, religious affiliations. You know, it, it just all those things that hinder people's ability to voice uh, their opinions mm -hmm. were devoid in my sphere. You know, yeah. it, it was like, but I did know um, I was risking my safety in, in certain respects sure. and my privacy in certain respects. A lot of people also wondered why that didn't appear on personal journals because that yeah. was right around the same time when I was recording the mm -hmm. album. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want a song of that magnitude to um, uh, take over the, the yeah. vibe of personal journals. Well, it you know, would have it, felt out of place if you look at it now. I mean, just, it just, I mean, yeah. not that you weren't making commentary on, on, on bigger things throughout personal journals, but it was so specific. Right. Right. Yeah. It was, I mean, it meant a lot to, uh, to me and a lot of people. Cause you know, you just start feeling like, am I crazy? Like everyone was on the same you know, mentality of, you know, we're all the, the, the patriotism that was going around. And if, if you weren't there, if you were already one of those people who had these ideas, of you know, critiquing these things and look, you know, this is what they're doing type thing. So it was really, really, really cool to hear in that way. It's a dope song too. Um, I appreciate let's get that. Into it. Let's get into uh, personal journals. I want to start pretty generally just to, as we weighed in, I was thinking we could talk generally about, um, you know, uh, some of the, conceptually of the album and then kind of talk a little bit about production. I'd love to bring up some of the songs towards the end, but, you know, um, uh, you know, with 20 years past now, uh, looking back at the album, that's many could say kind of started it all for you. You know, what, um, what is the sage of today that I'm talking to, you know, think of, um, you know, what's the sage at 23, right. You know, what he put out into the yeah. world. It's, there's gotta be, I don't know. I would, I would feel pride is a big, big answer there, but I'm really curious how, how you look at it now. Yeah. I've kind of been forced to look back on it and experience pride as well as cringe. Um, I was, I, and, <laughs> you know, cause anyone who looks back totally. on their early twenties, I think should, you know, probably is you have those moments where you're like, I would not do that again if I had the chance, but I'm really glad that I did when I did it. Mm -hmm. um, it was the time to do that. I was, I would say I was a loose cannon and fancy free, um, wildly spirited um, and with zero inhibitions. And it all came out in the music and I uh, personal journals as my first solo studio album as far as I was concerned, might have been my only album. Um, uh, that's what I was thinking at the time. So I threw everything in the kitchen sink at it because I wanted to document my existence and, you know, uh, flex all creativity, flex all cleverness that I could, and also incorporate every element of my creative life not just personal life, but what I was doing creatively within spoken word um the battle scene mm -hmm. live performances so now when i look back on it i can see that and i can sense it i be like some of it could be removed and it wouldn't hurt the album yeah. but i also wanted to include 
all you, it has so many contributors there's so many people involved with that record and i did that purposely because i didn't want to be locked into just being known as a person who works with one or two people mm-hmm. or, or at the time even one or two labels i was i wanted to be um just as free as possible and not make people think oh he only was able to do that because this other person had their hand in it so i included as many hands as possible and i curated that um, and to still come out with a cohesive album by the end of that is a feat all in itself. Yeah. Not many people realize just how crazy that is. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think in a way I wanted that to highlight what my contribution was to, to my own projects. And um, so that when they heard me from project to project, they would always know, oh, this, this came together in a similar way mm-hmm. um, because he was able to you know, make sense of uh, who he was working with, how he was recording it, uh, who would eventually um, do, you know, like a, a big shout out to Chris Warren, who was my engineer at the time. Mm-hmm. The the nicer sounding songs on personal journals, such as Runaways, um, Personal Journalist, uh, Specialist, they were recorded in an actual studio with an actual engineer yeah. named Chris Warren. And that all the other so stuff raw, I too. Yeah, the, yeah, well, the other stuff I mixed, recorded and mixed myself, and it's, okay. or a lot of it actually. Yeah, and it's very raw, mm-hmm. and like, I am so lucky. I count my lucky stars that it's listenable, and it worked out the way that it did, and it also provides the proper spirit for what that album in that time period was, because yeah. it wasn't supposed to be polished. It wasn't supposed to be super nice and glassy. It was supposed to show a lot of flaws. And it did. But I also wanted to show a more proper side of, um, you know, a professional approach to a recording project. And that's, I think that's the magic touch that Chris Warren um, added to the project. Yeah, it's amazing how there's so many different experiences on it and feelings. And like you were alluding to, some are super, super crisp recordings, some raw, and it's still kind of it, it flows and just works as this cohesive unit it's it's really a feat it's it's unbelievable in that way um I was definitely going to dive into that how it just felt like this was just you putting everything into it all your all your different pieces the slam poetry the hard edge the kind of the punk ethos and it just it is kind of you know you showing what you could do at, at this time, which is really neat. I was wondering, though, it's always fascinating to me to speak about intent when it comes to hip hop, because a lot of us fans will look at it and look at a, you know, an album or even a song and find find some some depth. But then you can hear like the MC talk about it and they'll be like, look, we were just trying to, you know, say how dope we are in a lot of different ways or, uh, you know. But I am curious if there was, you know, when you were conceiving and, and conceptualizing the album, you know, what the intent or kind of the hope for the album was i mean we're you know uh, hoping that you would you know be able was it also was it kind of cathartic to put yourself out there in this way i mean it's it is a very vulnerable and honest album and uh it's 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 pretty impressive in that way yeah uh, i would say i intentionally stayed away from um braggadocious trying to do something braggadocious because that was so popular at the time and um it was what was expected of me i I just wanted to throw people for a loop um and i didn't want to get boxed into that type of hip-hop um even though i loved it i mean i really was highly involved in it because i was in the battle scene i was doing um i was making a name for myself in the battle scene Mm -hmm. 
and I was doing the stuff with nonprofits, which was very um, boom bap, uh, braggadocious driven sure. hip hop. Mm-hmm. So, and I had already really made a name for myself with the mixtapes, um, mm-hmm. the sick of mixtapes. Yeah. And I was doing a lot of that type i feel like i had established that i can do that so yeah. then i wanted to make the the big official project be something different at the risk of losing a lot of the fans that i maybe had won over with the the battle stuff mm-hmm. um but it felt like that was the time to do it and yeah. and and the company that i was with was made like con- in context that made sense because anticon was very anti conformity obviously that's the name um but they were they didn't want any east coast boom bap stuff even though i did put that into the album Mm -hmm. i understood that this was a great opportunity where i could make a hip-hop album that didn't have to be driven by that mentality and i could um work with producers who were more than happy to explore different sides of what hip-hop can do Mm and still sound dope and you know and still yeah, hit yeah. the right notes and still like you know have the beats punch you in the gut and mm-hmm. and, and uh yeah so but it also was very um we were exploring very fresh territory i don't think anyone completely knew what the end result would be i know that mm. at least half of the anticon collective was on the fence about me even doing anything within the label and in their little commune. Um, Yeah, there was um, my first trip. (laughs) I think they saw, so this is how it goes. They saw how much I was selling with my Uh mixtapes. I I was selling a lot. Um, There was a lot of buzz around my name. I was touring internationally even without any proper backing i had once i had one scribble jam which um a lot of the anticon cats had attended since its inception um yeah i mean mr dibs uh he's he's one of the founders too right and they yeah yeah, i purposely like made sure to include him on on Mm -hmm. on personal journals Mm -hmm. even though it's one of the (laughs) cringy um (laughs) (laughs) not cringy but it's just like I don't think it's people different. understand the context of kill your moms. Yep. <laughs> kill your moms. It, th- this is a whole other story. Cause we could, yeah. I mean, we could talk for months, but um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so once I had done that, I think they saw, okay, I was, I was cool enough with um, soul and alias mm-hmm. and DJ Mayo. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were like, you know what? I, I, they had a meeting and they, they voted on whether they should, you know, approach me about putting out an album. I think by one vote, I, uh, I passed and they approached me and soul was like, yo dude, we're going to do, you know, we're down to do a Sage Francis album. I'll give you a $1 advance. You know, <laughs> it's like, we're not promising you anything, but they all, everyone thought they were going to be a millionaire within six months because times were so crazy and they knew they were on, um, the verge of breaking something really unique yeah, and yeah. Um, publications were always, you know, covering what they were doing. And, and there was a lot of um, fervor around the, the Anticon stuff. Yeah. Um, so I, I was, I was like, yeah, finally, you know, I have um, an organization with uh, the infrastructure that I would need in order to release my album in stores mm-hmm 
and get publicity. Um, and that's how that happened. But I flew, they flew me out to California or I flew myself out. I can't quite remember. Yeah, yeah. I do remember uh, Nostam and Seoul picking me up at the airport in California, the Bay Area. Um, and like Seoul liter literally handed me a $1 bill and said, here's your advance, dude. <laughs> and for a month, I stayed in their little, um, or like a warehouse space that was their Anticon commune. And where each producer and rapper had their own living space within it. And um, I didn't know what the hell was going on. I just was like, all right, I'm expecting to be fed a bunch of beats and we're going to sit in a studio and record. And then nothing was happening. It just was very casual. And um, it took a while for me to receive any beats. And 6-2 wow. at the time was living there who I thought was a core member of Anticon later on learned that he wasn't really. Um, but he was, yeah. Yeah. So he has, I think the, a, the bulk of the beats on personal yes. journals yep. and part, partly why that is, is because he was working on the secrets at houses keep, I believe is the name of an instrumental project. Um, it didn't have a name at the time, but I heard him playing the beats, which was the crack pipes beat which then went into the different beat um, mm -hmm. and then the pictures of silence beat. And when I heard those together, I hoarded it. And I, well, you know, like maybe not understanding, Hey, he wasn't making this for me, but I said, like, I took the mini disc player to my little area where I was sleeping and that crack pipe song, the instrumental, I, I don't know what the original title for the beat is, but mm -hmm. um when it hit the middle territory, the middle mark where the, the sitar changes and plays, plays a different riff, the, sh the shit made me cry. It's the first time I was so locked in. It's the first time music ever made me cry. And I just wrote right then and there. I wrote to that, that, that beat, which became crack pipes. And, um, and then I continued to write. It was all, all close as close to a freestyle as you can get without it being a freestyle. Cause I just wrote um, the different after that. And then um, with pictures of silence, I believe I already had some of the writing done in my notebook. So I can't say that was like um, crack pipes or different, but so I think that's what kind of kickstarted uh, a lot of the concept of the album for me and for others when they heard it. Um, but yeah it was slow going i mean uh, for a long time i was there and and the very actually the very first song that i recorded was uh smoke and mirrors gel mm. because gel was also living in, in that space he gave me the beat for smoke and mirrors and that was that came out to be one of the more boom bap sounding songs of the album because his his beat making style is is boom bap yeah. And he always tempered, he had always tempered that by working with super weirdo rappers like Dose One, who would mm -hmm. like go super left field so that it was not, you know, but, you know, Mob Deep could be rapping over those beats, man. You yeah. know, like those yeah. beats are fucking incredible awesome. East Coast mm -hmm. <laughs> inspired as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. And I've always loved his production. And, and, and maybe when I did that, they got a little weird like ah oh, he's gonna make these kind of rap songs for a, a anticon album oh. you'd have to ask them honestly i i never really got into it but um 
okay i recorded the first few songs there and mm-hmm. it was um it was the the other songs that i ended up doing were broken wings and that was from a beat um that scott metallic sent me on a on a cassette tape and um inherited scars which um yeah. i worked on with dj mayo it was it was and I didn't do the personal journalist song there, but I did get the beat from him. Mm. So I, I had maybe eight songs and the, what is the album 18 yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe I had 10 songs mm. when I left California and I had recorded those all on my own. I had mixed them all on my own and then flew home to Rhode Island and then spent, I don't know, the next several months kind of tinkering about in the studio in Providence and also still touring and still doing shows. And I remember I ended up in uh, Canada and staying with six, two for a couple of days where we did um, cup of tea and um, black sweatshirt. So those were the other two uh, beats that six, two had on there. So, and, and it was, it's, it felt all over the place. Cause there was all different sounds and styles different contributors and i had to really meditate on what i was sitting on and how to put it all together and at that time i had already been doing so many mixtapes and being inspired by like mr dib style mixtapes and even buck 65 his early material all flowed like a mixtape it was one song would melt into the next and they would connect somehow and that's why personal journals sounds the way that it does and why a lot of the music just intertwines it, it connects in a way people don't do anymore because we live in a singles environment uh, where people are just checking out one track at a time on, on Spotify and it, you know, it doesn't work as a cohesive, um, you uh, whole, like f- from start to end, not many people do that. Shout out to Alexander Brown, who, who actually just did a, a, a album with strange famous called glow kid. And he, mm-hmm. he was very, insistent on having it flow from like the very start to the very end and have everything tied together and it's yeah. that's a special thing at this point it is it's wild but was, was it always the plan to have um that many producers on the album when you went out there i mean just was it a, a product of having the whole you know the, the the anti-con compound that you were talking about was that always the idea that you know kind of utilize everyone there not really no i I don't think it was intentional from the get-go um i mean if gel had just given me a full album worth of beats i I would have gladly done that you know but i feel like people were just reluctant to work with me not to and that's not a shot at anybody but it's like they gave me scraps sometimes or they would just kind of float something out there like okay this guy's hanging around he wants to rap uh you know we're doing an album fine here's a beat so it was like there wasn't one producer who was willing to just go all the way in and and dedicate their time and talents to my project because they didn't know really what what was possible yeah um alias who ended up becoming one of my greatest friends out of that collective Uh he was living there at the time too we only did one song together yeah um it was it was just one beat that he gave me and i you know yeah the um message sent mm-hmm. one of my favorite songs that i've done I'm, I'm very proud of that i'm so happy to have worked with him i miss him dearly he was an incredible dude but even back then and he was one of the friendliest cats he was one of the oh, only yeah. dudes in anticon 
who made me feel welcome and like I was part of the family. Yeah, I'm getting a sense you, you, you know, kind of felt ex- a little bit and you know reading into it a little bit, but a little bit like an outsider when you went out when it went out there. I absolutely was, yeah. and there was it was it was a contentious relationship with a lot of people, Definitely. and it started off contentious. I mean, we were all man that era of hip hop where white kids were very very protective mm-hmm. over um you know their image and how they're going to be presented to the hip-hop community and who they affiliate themselves with and also i come from an era the same kind of era that that soul comes from where like we were the only white kids rapping in our area Mm -hmm. you know and you you build this weird armor around yourself when when you start to encounter other mcs um who aren't black because you're like all right, are you really what you say you are? Because I've been through the trenches. I fucking had to prove myself time and time again. And uh, I know Dose had to go through the same stuff. You know, it was like, and that wasn't something that brought us together. It's something that just remained um, uh, a barrier of sorts. It just never, we never overcame it. Um, Eventually, I mean, down the road with certain people I did, but at the time when we were doing all this together, it, it wasn't resolved. Yeah. So you, I mean, you just, a a bit ago, you mentioned how you were working out cracked pipes. I mean, when you were going out there for those eight or or 10 songs that, that you did work on out there, uh, lyrically, how, how pieced together were you going out there with these songs already? And I mean, it sounds like some of them you're actually working on on the spot. Did did you travel with some of this, uh, some of these amazing poems? No, I, uh, most of them, I would say I I had to write on the fly. um i remember writing a lot of it there um because the the style of production was was not what i was used to it wasn't something i normally would write to i mean uh prepare for Mm -hmm. and most of my writing really was a punchline based and braggadocious and except for what i was doing in the spoken word environment so with the spoken word crowd it wasn't really rap you know i would do spoken word pieces uh and i would explore content that was not typical in hip-hop so then when i was doing personal journals what i did was i i bridged that gap between what i was doing Mm. in the hip-hop world and what i was doing in the spoken word world and exploring um subject matter that was atypical to hip-hop and doing it in my not just my my typical way but i was also flexing on different styles that i wasn't always doing Mm. um which was i would say was more the west coast influence of what anticon was inspired by uh and i was also doing the double time stuff early on in my (laughs) rap career like as a 13 year old i was that was kind of my gimmick when thankfully you know no one like hell of a gimmick me up and turn me into the next crisscross but yeah. it could have happened yeah uh, yeah i kind of just brought everything out to the surface at that point because mm-hmm. like i said i was like wow i'm gonna have an album in stores when will this ever happen again who knows it could never happen again maybe <clears throat> so i want to show everything that i can do and i want to show off but i also want to tell a story in a way that is uniquely mine yeah. um, i want people to be able to find solace in in what i um 
talk about because I found that I was able to benefit from that myself when listening to uh, hip hop and reading books and whatever else, you know, whatever art I consumed, it was like, I wanted to be part of that. I wanted to contribute in a way that was meaningful and not just showing off. Yeah. I, I mean, when uh, putting yourself, as you, you just described, as, as putting yourself so uh, deeply into it and, and then, you know, thinking about some of the lyrical content, I'm curious, thinking a younger person might not really give a fuck, but like, or give less of a fuck, but I'm curious if there is some sort of line that, um, you know, a young sage had at the time as, as far as, you know, what you were talking about. I mean, there's some really intimate stuff here. I mean, there's some, this family trauma unpacked and, and just a whole lot of, you know, self honest, self deprecation throughout the whole album is, was there ever um, a line to what you were doing or at that time where you just, you know, kind of brave enough to just, do it put it out there yeah there, there was not a line it wasn't and i think it's there, no there was no <laughs> line there was like i would I'm, I'm one of the my favorite quotes from a review back then i think it was from pitchfork they were like mm-hmm. clearly nothing embarrasses this guy <laughs> it was um, <laughs> and i think about it a lot because i'm like it's true back then i did not give a fuck it was yeah. no there was nothing that was going to stop me from just saying whatever and 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 maybe I should have had that line, you know, maybe, but as an artist at that time, no, I did not. And mm-hmm. I'm thankful that I was able to be that person and be that artist when I was, it's not something everyone can experience. It's not something everyone can exercise. And I knew it. I, I mean, I under, I understood the privilege of, yeah. of that situation and it, it did hurt people. Like my grandmother was upset oh, about wow. it. Um, you know, my, you know, having those discussion discussions later after the fact, that's, that's difficult. And then having the answer to the subject matter, um, forever, Mm -hmm. forever, you know, me now is 40, I don't even know how old I am, 45 or 46, but (laughs) at this age, I'm still having to answer to certain things that I, that I discuss in those songs. And I don't want to, you know, like, I don't want to address it. I don't want to revisit it. Um, and I don't want family members to be hurt by it. And I don't want people to feel disrespected because that wasn't the point. That certainly wasn't the goal. Um, and the confusion that surrounds it can, can, can be problematic in various um, instances throughout adulthood. Um, but uh, yeah, like I said, honestly, no regrets, but yeah. I would change things if I had to go back. Sure, sure. Totally understand that. I'm, I'm sure uh, I'm, I'm definitely thankful for, for you putting it out there. There's a lot of deep stuff you talk about that meant a lot to people and that was relatable. That was really intense stuff. I'm curious, you sprinkle in, like like if we were talking about the house, how much of you use in there, you sprinkle in kind of rhymes from what i assume are like old tapes you were making when you were younger right is is there um these there's early recording sessions that that you you took stuff from and put them there can you tell us some about that and how they ended up on the album yeah like i said i threw everything in the kitchen sink at it and i wanted (laughs) i wanted i wanted those recordings of myself when i was like nine ten eleven years old um, I would record myself on my tape recorder or my boom box 
just rapping over whatever types of instrumentals I could access. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yeah, and it was funny for me, I wanted to show, a, and I don't think most people understand it's even me because it's, it just sounds like a little kid. Yeah, I just made the assumption. Or maybe it sounds like a yeah. girl, you know, like it's, it's a different <laughs> yeah. voice. It's yeah. not my, you know, it's not my voice. Uh-huh. But I wanted that to give context, like, wow, he's really been doing this this long. Because uh-huh. when I released personal journals, I already felt like I was an old man in rap. Uh-huh. Like my idea and understanding of what hip hop was, uh-huh. I was past my prime. <laughs> it's, yeah. you know everyone looks back on it now like wow that was your first you know that's where everything started but to me it could have really well been the end i had friends of mine being like yo you're too old for this shit man it's like you know the the, the opportunity has passed it's time to start thinking about other things in life and it uh, really was where it all started for me and it, you know yeah. um so the i included those those snippets of myself that mm. i thought were kind of funny or in some way would foreshadow other things that I would be doing in hip hop. And uh, yeah, again, it was more of a mixtape mentality, a DJ oh. mixtape type mentality where you just throw in those like extra little weird things that, that just pop up out of nowhere and mm. make people wonder what the hell they're listening to. <laughs> oh man. Um, let's, I'm going to ask you a couple, couple questions about some of the songs. I know we, we discussed how crack pipes opened it off, but uh one that really resonates with all of us is different, of course, the second track. And I don't know if you guys know how 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 crazy you were for that that upright bass line beat. That that just that just kills me when that drops in. It's amazing. But um yeah, I mean this this it also this that's the one that starts that first line's a, a nod to the Ralph uh Ralph um Waldo Emerson quote, right? The uh nothing is at last sacred but integrity uh, of your own mind. That's that's crazy. But uh so that track, it's it's really it's 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 remarkable on many levels, and I think a lot of people who kind of see themselves as 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 a unique being really, really you know were drawn to it. But it touches on how you were treated differently for different ways. The uh, the um you know because they didn't like the the that I that I wouldn't smoke the pot that um that I was pissing and kind of speaks to two things. It's I think it's about not selling out. And then also being different in the way that I'm sure a lot of people in the scene were, were you know, using uh, alcohol and drugs and you weren't. So is it, was that challenging? The kind of, uh, you know, being the person who who in this game was wasn't, you know, willing to sell, sell out and also being different in the other way where you weren't, weren't getting down in that, that certain way that had to. I mean, that really the song really touches on that in a major way. Yeah, um, I, I suppose that was one of the major differences for me um amongst my peers and amongst people in the music industry where i just was not down like i didn't smoke weed you know (laughs) and i didn't drink so it was like that hinders your relationships or it did for me it hindered my relationship with people because i didn't have those bro down moments i wasn't invited you know to smoke out Mm -hmm. and people also felt disrespected by that um they felt there was moments where people thought I was a fucking agent. <laughs> like, dog, people were not comfortable with a cat in hip hop who would yeah. not smoke a blunt with them. Yeah. Yeah. I found myself in really odd, precarious situations just because I was so adamantly opposed to any kind of substances like um, anything. So it, it kept me in a, a weird space. It kept me, I guess, a bit distanced from people that i would later on 
I feel like have a much closer connection with, especially after touring um, and becoming actual friends, not due to, you know, like people didn't have to like, they knew I was weird and different, but not in a way that I was looking down on them. Mm. Even though I would say there was definitely a period of my life in my early adulthood where I, I was adamantly against uh, like all substances and I did look down on people who yeah. smoked. I did look down on people who drank mm-hmm. and that just was, that was, a, that was a me problem. You know, that was, that was um, what I had experienced in my life and what I was afraid of, what I was afraid of becoming um, what I was afraid of allowing back into my life. So I, I put up a fucking shield, man. I, you know, and that was real. I, I can't say anything else about it. I mean, oh. I can't say it was right. I can't say it was wrong. It just, that's what it was. And um, so, yeah, that, so I'm glad that I didn't really go too, too yeah. hardcore on different, like I, it just kind of was a passing reference because oh. by that time, maybe Very I was wild. just like over it, you know? Yeah. So that's, I'm proud of that. I'm glad I did that. Yeah. It's crazy. How many, how many lines throughout the whole album that you're picking apart so many double meetings throughout the whole thing. It's so impressive. The, uh, Inherited Scars is, is, is another one that really gets people. It gets me. I mean, uh, one thing I take away from it is kind of the the idea that, and you're, you're not always right when you're thinking this, but, you know, that you weren't there. I've, I've had people, you know, who uh, in my life who've taken their life and like you really, you start thinking that that you could have been there for them in a much, much bigger way. But, and, 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 and I think you're alluding to that when, when it comes to self-harm here and, you know, there's a lot of air and a family trauma. This this one had to be pretty personal to you, right? This it feels like one of the more personal tracks on the album. Yeah, it is. Um, I remember writing it, and once um, Mayo gave me the beat um, with the that that horn on it. Yeah, um, that sax sounds amazing. It didn't have the same drums though. He had another beat with those drums, and I said, mm. I asked him, I was like, "Hey, can you take those drums and put it with this horn?" And then that became the per- that became the uh, inherited scars song, and um, I wrote to it on the spot. Um, I remember when I was writing it, feeling like I was really tapping into something special. Just I had that feeling. I was like, "Wow!" Like I want to remember this feeling so that I can always return to it whenever I need to write something um, this heavy, <laughs> you know, or yeah. or this involved. Uh, I, I ultimately forgot forgot it, but um, <laughs> I do remember trying to. Re- I remember trying to remind myself of that feeling. Uh, yeah, I wrote that because it was something that happened to me um, within the. I was still in college when it happened, but when I, my sister, um, showed me uh, all her scars mm. and what she was doing through self-harm and how I was supposed to process that. And also knowing I had done that to myself as well. And, um, and I, she came, I, I was raised an only child, but she was my half sister. I have four half siblings. Mm-hmm. Um, none of us really were raised together. Uh, so I didn't even meet her until I was a senior in high school. In fact, she called me on the day of my prom. And um, from that moment on, 
it was the first sibling that I had um, con- uh, been in contact with. And I, I was so hungry for those connections because I knew my siblings existed, but I didn't have a way to contact any of them. Yeah. Somehow she um, got my information. She's younger than me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did my best to take on that brotherly role. And cause I kn- knew she was going through a lot of stuff and um not soon after that i was off to college so then i wasn't really able to see her much at all it was it was over an hour drive for me you know to meet up with her and take her places and do things and make sure she had a positive male influence in her life um not that that was my responsibility but it's what i felt and and then to process how things all fell apart um in her personal life and what my role was in that. Cause then I moved to New York city mm-hmm. and then I was at that point, I was totally out of reach. Um, and that's when things got heavy and hard. And uh, then, I mean, I, I'm not going to get into too many details. Sure, I will say sure. this though. I, I, what makes this even more difficult is I have two sisters and everyone, whenever, you know, like my, my other sister, um i I love i I mean i love them all but she's she's more active on social media and i you know like i would sometimes i try to help promote her etsy Uh site and stuff like this and people will always automatically think she's the one i was speaking about and inherited scars and it always makes things so difficult to 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 talk about because they those two sisters never even met one another yeah um what ended up happening with my sister from inherited scars it's tragic. It's awful. And I've never discussed it publicly, but, um, I, she, she died in 2020 Damn. and sorry of an overdose, but mm-hmm. I had cut her off for years before that for at least 10 years, I had to excommunicate her, um, for wildly awful shit that she was taking part in. And I gave an ultimatum because I couldn't let my life be affected anymore by what, you know, she was doing as a drug addict, uh, as a compulsive liar. Mm-hmm. And, and that all those things came hand in hand at a certain point. It just was like, I care about you so much that I'm going to do this for you. Mm-hmm. And then if you don't follow through with this, please do not ever like mm-hmm. show up on my doorstep barefooted in the winter again, <laughs> you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, so the family, yeah, there, yeah. And the other reason that song is um was became a little bit of a problem for me is because my grandmother, who I thankfully is still alive, she's going mm-hmm. through difficulties right now, but she's she's so important to my life. And um, even though my father was not a, like in my life really, she she remained a constant. Uh-huh. And for her to hear me talk about my father, she yeah. felt highly disrespected mm. and sad and she was upset about it and she confronted me about it and um i um i relive that interaction often and i wonder what would have been the best way for me to explain to her that it's not she shouldn't feel this way because other people have benefited greatly from hearing these lyrics and understanding Mm -hmm. that this is not a unique circumstance Uh other people go through this stuff um but she was like, that was my son, you know? And I was like, that was my father. So we're at an impasse right now. Yeah. 
I love you to death, <laughs> but man, I had, I had to talk about it because it was weighing on my conscience so much, but you know, mm-hmm. again, in retrospect now, as, as a man in his mid forties, yep. maybe I, I would have left out certain, um, certain details that yeah. didn't need to be there. I don't yeah. Know, if I was, I more- think, I think that's really good that, you know, and that you even just said it to her too, that, that these things do help people because as they did. And I, I know many people that, that they do. I was, um, I, I think I heard you talking one time about recording, uh, um, inherited scars and you were, you were left alone in the studio. I think at one point you were actually rhyming until you lost your voice is what you were saying, which, which makes sense. It's such, it's, yeah. it's, and it's really, really intense. Climb trees follows. And, um, it's described in the liner notes as a song about uh, the Antichrist. And, you know, it was, it was, uh, what's your relationship to, with religion that we see kind of come to light in some of these songs, um, you know, in, in this thing? There's a lot to unpack in Climb Trees, uh, you know, about uh, religiously, you know. It's, it's, I'm curious what, you know, yeah. led to that. Well, this I found it curious that this was the one song you kind of left out of your review. Man, you I was gonna, I was gonna bring that up. I, I wrote a review once for Run the Jewels too, and I know LP read it. And the first thing he said is, "You, you forgot Crown." <laughs> like, and I, it's, I'm not surprised to see you said it. I did not. I think it's because there was so much to unpack here but uh yeah I, i'm always well the reason i, I the reason i noticed is because i'm always curious to see what people take away from that it. song yeah um but that that was the very last song that i wrote uh when i was uh staying with the anticon crew and it was like um it was like a last minute idea gel was putting together the beat um i can't i mean i can't remember certain things but i I, I wrote to it on the spot and you know, like, it just was like, kind of whatever was coming to me. I, I, I had the chorus, I already had the chorus and then everything came from that. So I had climb trees go out on a limb. That's all I had. I just mm-hmm. was like, ah, oh, that's a cool idea. How am I going to go out on a limb? What, you know, what am I going to say? And I really was just having fun with words, the sound of words, syllable placements, yeah. um, the maze and labyrinth of word connections that really was the driving element behind climb trees really fun tempo um, change so it's not yeah yeah it, it's just his well the eventually when gel heard what i was doing uh-huh. uh, rhythmically um cadence wise he then played the drums on the sp 1200 sample machine um to mimic certain patterns of my delivery so that it all um fit and and fell in place together which i love like i i would love to do more stuff like that and that was the when he does that stuff with dose i was like god damn this is some next level honestly some next level shit that almost nobody does almost no one can do so for me to take part in that was was huge for me And it was, I think the last day that I was staying there and I was recording, I finally was recording the song and it wasn't sounding right. And I'm in that little room recording myself, playing it back on the ADAT machine. And I'm like, why does my fucking voice sound weird? Like I, I, and then I, I was started losing my voice because that was happening. I, I would do so many takes because I didn't know how to engineer. And then I'd eventually start losing my voice. And then I perform the way that I wanted to sound and 
and then I realized that the microphone was turned backwards. So I was, I was like, I was shouting into the wrong side of the microphone. So that's why it sounded weird. And then I just gave up on it. I said, all right, you know, I don't need this song. We got enough shit. We got enough stuff. And, um, and I think soul and alias both were like, dude, this is the fucking best song you've ever made. Like you gotta, you, you really should rethink this. You should go back and do it. I was like, all right. So <laughs> turn the microphone the correct way. Eventually I was able to execute it. Mm -hmm. um, and it became the very first single for personal journals. That was the 12 inch that came out, which I think had inherited scars on it as well as one other song. Mm. Um, but uh, content wise, I mean, I, it's a bit of a reach. A lot of my lyrics tend to have religious themes in them. They, yeah. they just kind of creep into my writing often. So I didn't intentionally go there in the liner yeah. notes. I mentioned that just because by the end of the song I did, yeah. I did, I, I, I thought it made sense that, okay, the antichrist is trying to take people under his broken wing and, and he's like trying to lure them away from God. Um, but I wouldn't say that was fully intentional and I didn't really think too much about it. It just yeah. is the way the words all came together. It was just an exercise and, um, just jerking off with words. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. The cynical, dim-witted trickster, critical, shit-grinning yeah, hipster. Yeah, exactly. It's so good. Um, Broken Wings, I need to ask. I was a little vague when I was writing up about that, too, just because, you know, it's so it's so sad and intense, but it's gorgeous, and it's, like, tender. There's, like, a real affection there. And um, Can you tell us some about this? I, I just, I'm a little bit in the dark of exactly how to interpret it, but it's just, it's gorgeous. Well, thank you. I, I mean, that song is one of the top three from the album that most people seem to have gravitated yeah. toward and always are like man that song's about me or mm -hmm. i know exactly who this is about you know mm -hmm. so it, it, it tapped into something pretty special um and i'm glad i kept it as vague as i did so that people could own it as their own you know if had i been too specific i probably would have ruined the magic of of how people yeah. can connect with music um because it, i would say it was inspired by a very specific person and situation but i also knew that it wasn't special to her and a lot of people experience it because i had seen how often creative and special people are taken advantage of by those who you know they want to be part of the experience they want to be intrinsically connected to what they see as special and in that process they hold that person down and they ruin what could potentially be um, a launching pad for them because they needed to be part of it and by all means necessary they will keep that person down just as long as they get to be around them and that was that's that's the impetus but behind broken wings but it honestly very specifically was inspired by a woman who I would see performing at a cafe wearing wings as oh, part of her prop. Damn, when I would literal. go on lunch breaks, I would walk down to a cafe uh -huh. and it's, it was with her and we, we ended up um, becoming a couple for a short period of time before um, I moved to New York. Um, and uh, I was trying you know, like, man, it was, it was, 
I, I don't want to get too deep into this because sure. this could take us for two hours. It, yeah, this, yeah, honestly, yeah. there's so many things to say about what was going on and what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, it's important that people understand it's really not just about one person. It was inspired by that. And then everything, it's, it became a composite where I had seen it happen to so many other people. And I, you can always recognize the patterns. And it's not unique to any time period. It happens in 2022. It's going to happen in 2055, yep. Yep. you know? So um, those people will always relate to it. And they'll always understand that when people don't get what they want from a special entity, that they're going to shit talk it and degrade it and try to make sure that, you know, they, f- they feel like they're bigging themselves up by putting them down. Yeah. And, um, Tales yeah, the, the oddest thing about that, the oddest thing about that is like it became like the some type of stripper anthem, <laughs> not an anthem, but the, like yeah. several girls who strip would use it as their song. They would tell me like I wouldn't see it if yeah. I saw that in person. I would probably just I don't know jump <laughs> off a fucking rooftop and be like, yeah. "It's over! It's I did it. it! That's it! That's it! Reach mountaintop." What um <laughs> one one of the songs I really just the beat just kills me. I love it. What's the title mean? Though the strange, famous mullet remover. And am I right to look at that as an ode to like hip hop and boom bap? It was the, and then the beatbox, and it was the. I just, I always, I always see it as an ode to hip hop and like what like got you was that like boom bap beat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. So the mullet that was a reference. I wanted to reference a, a spoken word piece that um, was called the mullet that okay. I I did in 1998, and. It is when um, I I feel like I started to make a big name for myself in the spoken word community and Mm. specifically the slam community, which was like battle rap for poets and just as stupid. But it (laughs) it was something I involved myself in because I could win $20 if I won a slam and that $20 would go a long way. So um, I wrote a piece about hip hop and what drew me in. And, um, but there was a twist in the end where I, you know, understand that white people are taking it over mm-hmm. and it's exactly what happened to rock and roll and, and how people are processing it. And, and the mullet was a specific hairstyle that I personally did have as a kid where you had long hair in the back and uh-huh. short hair on top. So, um, Party in the, back. The, the strange famous mullet remover was sampling, um me doing that poem along with other stuff that reanimator and mike 2600 uh scratched into it Mm. and um it was an it was kind of an ode it was an ode to that piece because i think it encapsulated a lot of my history and um and reanimator quite honestly like he gave that to me after a show in milwaukee i think um a couple of years earlier and uh oh no 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 he recorded he recorded me doing the piece what, whatever happened i can't even remember how this all came about but what they ended up doing with that beat that i used as an interlude i thought was amazing i love that it referenced that that um that poem mm. and i had been so well known because of that poem within the hip-hop and poetry communities that i wanted to include it on personal journals but now in 2022 i look back on it no one knows any no one can connect any of those dots but to me at the time yeah to me at that time it was like oh this make totally makes sense everyone's gonna get it 
but yeah. no, it, it just is basically an interlude with some cool scratches at this point. Yeah, totally. So Eviction Notice is another really, really uh, personal song. Um, she described as basically about how sacrificing vices will invite themselves to an overstayed welcome at your haunted house party. Um, but that's one another family member is involved, but that's another another deep, deep one. Um, this one kind of talking about your, your mother and, and trauma there, or just kind of some infighting and, and, and relationships there. Can you tell us a little bit about eviction notice and how that came to be? Yes. Uh, some of your um, interpretation of that is on point, but it's, yeah. it's almost like it's only one part of it. And um, have you, did you ever watch the show quantum leap? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that character, he jumps into different mm-hmm. people and it has to deal with different scenarios and yeah, try out. to fix things. I'm up. doing that in that song. That's oh, yeah? my dreams work in that. Yeah. I'm, I, t- I take on different people within that song mm-hmm. uh, from old to young, from boyfriend to husband to, you know, so it's not, it's not a linear type song, but what I do is I mirror each verse um, so if you'll notice the first verse and the second verse mimic each other in certain ways, but it's in reverse. Um, and somehow I'm trying to make sense of how that all ties together by being the, the young kid witnessing someone getting kicked out, um, being the older person getting kicked out, mm-hmm. being the boyfriend, being the husband. Yep. Um, so it's, it, it's not about, I wouldn't say there was a revolving door of, of men in my life. There really was only my biological father and then my stepdad. That's it. Yeah. But um, <laughs> I witnessed many things and, and many um, uh, many different realities uh, within um the context of, of both situations. So that was a big inspiration behind the song, but also it, uh, it also was about actual eviction notices. It actually was about, you know, I was just drawing in all of these, these things that I had experienced and throwing them into one track and trying to contain it by making it a mirror between the first and second verse. Yeah. What a cool, very idea. nerdy. That was a, that's yeah. a very nerdy approach. <laughs> I like the concept concept to it. It's so cool. So runaways really feels like to me, really puts kind of like a bow on bow on the album for the final track um uh you know it's kind of like this idea that that you know going back to and i'm going home but it also feels like you're matching that like not much has changed too you know uh, it's you're also you still don't feel at home in the world it seems in a lot of ways but i was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about how you know it did feel was that like the intent for that was the closing track right i mean everything about it feels like the end to the album yeah not really because i had that song i had that song before the personal journals idea ever came about yeah yeah um not the beat i had the lyrics Uh it was one of those songs that i wrote and everything was just flowing out of me and everything was making sense and i was rapping it over different instrumentals in fact the very first version i ever recorded was over an alias beat that ended up becoming um a song called um keep moving Mm. Mm-hmm. off of my human the death dance album yeah, yeah. so i have i actually have a demo recording of me doing those lyrics over that beat that, wow um but 
I remember during that time I was heavy doing the nonprofit stuff with Joe Beats, mm -hmm. and he insisted. He was like, "Yo, do not do this over anyone else's beat. This is mine." Like oh, he's wow. like, he was very insistent. Uh huh. And the we were also recording the Hope album, the nonprofit's Hope album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the fact that Joe wanted that, and I it was already just, it was such a big part of me and it was a very personal yeah. song. I use that as the last track on personal journals as a foreshadowing of what would happen with the follow-up project, which oh, was the cool. hope album. I didn't realize it was that so, much foresight. That's incredible. Yeah. It's yeah. A, it's really crazy how things fell into place without uh -huh. much preparation. It's not like I sat in a war room to make sense of everything, <laughs> but it all made sense the way it fell into place. Totally. Totally. It's hard not for us to look at, look at it. Like you were sitting in that war room doing the whole thing. So 20th anniversaries. There's well, a my brain. <laughs> my, my brain is the war room day yeah. and night where it will not stop. It won't stop showing me every possible outcome of, you know, every it's bad. It's, it's, yeah, it's too bad. Yeah. Uh, 20th anniversary. There's a, as a, is a repressing of the, uh, the album going on right is there going to be any special offerings in that or anything i'm excited about that yeah we were um we, i was gathering photos from that era that we include now in the liner or not the liner notes but the booklet inside the um the pressing which and we also included the lyrics which we never made available before so there's a lyric sheet um it's an embossed cover so it, it's Hell yeah it's unique it's it'll stick out in a different way um i i'm trying to remember other stuff that we did but we were we were trying to think of all things that we could do that wouldn't mess with the actual album itself um the recordings just offer some extras along the way so we're waiting for that to be delivered to us we already received the pr test pressings but with the vinyl plants being as over driven as they are right now it looks like we won't get it until the winter of 2022 um, yeah it probably will make it into stores when it's like 21 years old but in the meantime we're putting together cool ideas like um unique merch items and action okay. figures and like limited edition stuff that uh -huh. really is is a niche very super niche market but i know Good. people who well, you know, just love the album and Absolutely. you know, they no, like to have stuff like that. No question. Many of us, I'm guessing <laughs> the, the state of the world, the uh, 20th anniversary tour is off the table, huh? Yeah. And it was a big, was it a um, thought plan it early on? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I wanted to, I was going to do a, li a live band because when, when I toured personal journals uh -huh. and, um, and then I followed it up with a live band. We did a lot of, yeah. we just did a lot of live interpolations uh -huh. of the songs and they sounded awesome. Yeah. And I was like, man, it's been 20 years. I'm going to finally like be able to revisit all of this mm -hmm. and go big. But, Fuck. you know, not only the pandemic, but having kids and being oh. married now. And then I'm realizing, wow. You have a real young one, right? I, yeah. He just turned 18 months old. Uh, yeah. um, my <laughs> little boy is like my little mini me he's, he's amazing man. he's like all i give a fuck about now it's yeah like, right well it's my wild. whole family but it's isn't like that, yeah, isn't I, that wild i mean to think of kind of like the cringe or just like what we were back in the day i mean if you listen to disasters you can't i couldn't imagine hearing yes. you say that
man, I couldn't fathom it. I never, it would never yeah. was part of what I wanted in life. It wasn't anything I purposely went after. And it makes me also think back to personal journals where the people that I was with, like the relationships that I'm referencing in the songs, a, a, at least a couple were like, why the hell isn't he proposing to me? Like, you know, we're supposed to get married if we're going to be together for two, three, four years. And in my head, at that time, it, it never crossed my mind. I never was thinking of marrying anybody. I just was a serial monogamous. I wanted to be in like, I wanted my best friend, you know, like I wanted my partner, but I wasn't thinking marriage. I wasn't thinking kids. I never was thinking that. And then much later in life, and they already have, their kids are probably 18 years old now. And I have a fucking one-year-old kid and they're probably looking at me like, what the hell? You know, like, <laughs> seriously, dude. Yeah. But they have to know that I was so weird and I still yeah. am that none of that crossed my mind. It was not intentional. Yeah. I wasn't dragging yeah. people along. Mm -hmm. Music was my life. I was married to my career mm -hmm. and now it's my side chick. Different. Exactly. Exactly. Hey, I, um, <laughs> I can't, I can't thank you enough for the time digging into the album like this means a lot. I know it's going to mean a lot for, for your fans to hear more about it. This, this one means the world to us. It's just, it's so true. It's crazy. It's so crazy to me how deep it is. And then at the same time, it's so damn fun. So thank you very much for taking the time and really laying it out here and talking about these things. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, you're the, you're the man for even going back and looking into it and thinking about it. Go to avoid the sun rays, the noise of subways, emerging introverted, unemployed and unshaved, feeling rewarded, offering a finder's fee that I know no one will pay. This is where some go to avoid the sun rays, the noise of subways, emerging introverted, unemployed and unshaved. I've got multiple personalities, my inner children are runaways. podcast is in the loop the legion of osiris podcasts osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love get in the loop at osirispod.com